frog and toad together. The short stories are known for their simplicity and charm, and one of my favorites is called The Garden. In the garden, what happens is Frog has, well, a garden, and Toad comes strolling along to find Frog's garden, and he says, this is very nice. I would like to have a garden. Frog, being the good chap that he is, says, here are some flower seeds. Plant them in the ground, and soon you will have a garden. How soon, Toad asks. Quite soon, Frog replies. And so Toad takes his seeds home and plants them in the ground. And then he says, now seeds start growing. Nothing happens. And so he arches his face a little bit closer to the ground and says, seeds start growing. Nothing happens. And so finally he gets his face right up on the ground and says, Seeds, start growing! And nothing happens. Along comes Frog at this point and he asks Toad how things are going and Toad explains that the seeds just aren't growing. He says, well, you need to be patient. Just wait a while. But Toad cannot wait. He finds himself thinking about the seeds all the time. And so, in the middle of the night, he goes out and he reads the seeds, a bedtime story. The next day, he sings to the seeds in the rain. The day after that, he sits and plays a violin for the seeds. Still, they will not grow. Eventually, he falls asleep exhausted. And he is awoken by Frog's voice. Toad, Toad, look at your garden. And he opens his eyes and discovers that the promise of the seeds has been kept. They indeed grew. So many of us are so like Toad. Empty of patience. Ignorant of promises. We, we spin ourselves up with unnecessary worry and activity. Because waiting is so hard. I mean, think about it. Nobody likes to wait, especially not in our culture. Right, when was the last time you went to the grocery store and you procured all those items that you need and you got to, to the end and you said, okay, there's an open checkout lane here, but there's a line of about four or five people over there. I cannot wait to wait. Give me the four or five person line. Or how many of you, I know it's probably a few, still have dial-up internet because you just love that as you connect. Love to wait. No, we we do not like to wait. And yet this season of Advent calls us to waiting. Indeed, the command to wait is enjoined upon Christians over and over again throughout the New Testament. 
We are a people who wait, who believe the promises of God and are waiting for their fulfillment. And it's during this season of Advent that we are reminded that we follow in the footsteps of the people of God who came before us, who waited for that first Advent of Christ. And so today, as we come to Luke chapter 1, and consider together the beginning of the fulfillment of those promises, I want to encourage you to believe and wait. To believe what God's Word has said and to wait on its fulfillment. It will bear fruit. The main idea of our uh, pericope this morning, or I should say a story because it's two different pericopes, but the main idea is this. God answers prayers and accomplishes his purpose. You've got your outline there before you. We're going to consider the story uh, by considering uh, each of these characters in turn. Uh, Zechariah, Elizabeth, and the child. And yes, point three is a headline that's written strictly for those who have been watching The Mandalorian. If you don't know, you don't know. Let's pray, and we will begin together. Father, what an incredible privilege it is to come together to worship you. What a privilege it is to hear your word proclaimed. Give us ears that we might hear. Give us your spirit that we might believe and be changed. This morning, Lord, we ask that you would give us Jesus and that you would draw us close. Help us to see the wonderful promises embedded in your word to us. Help us to believe what you have said, to enjoy that which you have already given, and to wait patiently for that which is promised. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story comes on the front end of the book of Luke, and Luke opens his book by telling us he has done some research. And what he's done is he's tried to compile an account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants to tell us about the life of Christ so that we can know with certainty that these events happened, that Jesus was who he said he was. And so he begins by putting the spotlight on the birth of John the Baptist. By bringing his father, Zechariah, center stage. Look with me at verse 5. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame, according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. We are introduced to a righteous couple, a couple that keeps all the commands of the Lord, a couple that is blameless. Blameless there doesn't mean that they're without sin but that they are faithful and committed to obeying the word 
of the Lord. This is a godly couple. If it were today, it would be this, this Christian couple that's in church every Sunday, that's always hassling you to come over to their house, who's bringing you food when you need it, who's always looking for a way to pray for you and to encourage you. These are people that we would think of as, as very, very godly. And so, because of their righteousness, we read that Zechariah and Elizabeth have absolutely everything they could ever possibly want. Because if you have enough faith, then you get what you desire. Actually, that's not at all the truth. Look, look, look at verse 7 again. Here is this righteous couple, and here is the wrinkle. But, it's an adversative. They had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. Some of us don't, don't see this immediately to be a big deal because we have 21st century ideals and we go, hey, no kids, that's great. They don't have to endure any sleepless nights. They have plenty of time to pursue their hobbies and to hang out with friends. What, what's the problem? But the first century Jewish person and the person who values scripture understands that children are always a blessing. And to be without children in the first century as a Jewish woman, even if you were righteous, was to be disgraced and disparaged. Everyone knew Psalm 127.3. Behold, children are a gift, a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Not having children for Zechariah and Elizabeth would have been cripplingly disappointing. Been something they prayed for. Day after day, night after night. And yet, well along in years, they had no children. God's plan was different from their prayers. Imagine some of us have experienced that. We have prayed for something and wondered why God didn't answer us in the way that we had hoped. Some of us may be in that place even now. Praying fervently for something. It seems as if God is not listening. Or he doesn't care. Or he's saying no. Brother, sister, Christian, I want to encourage you to follow the example of this couple. Notice, they didn't raise their fists at God. If you really loved me, you, you would give me a child. No, they continued to serve him faithfully through their sorrows. And that's the lesson for us. Serve God faithfully through your sorrows. Stay devoted in your disappointments. Believing God's word. Trusting his plan, even if you can't see it. After all, if you serve God for what you can get, then you actually are serving yourself. That, beloved, is the prosperity gospel, not the biblical gospel.
this example of Zechariah and Elizabeth should cause us to ask ourselves, will I faithfully serve God through my disappointments? Will God mean more to me than all those other things he denies me? God's plan was different from the prayers of Elizabeth and Zechariah. But God was up to something. Look at me at verse 8. When his division, that's Zechariah, when his division was on duty, and when he was serving as a priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. So, so priests generally lived in villages and had other parts of their job descriptions and they were separated into divisions. And what would happen is they would come and they would cast lots, kind of have a lottery system that would basically determine what job you were going to be able to do. And one of those jobs was the offering of the incense at the altar inside of the temple. And there's so many priests that you might not ever get this particular job. It was a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And it just so happens at this time in Zechariah's life that his division is on duty, the lot is cast, and he is chosen. He will burn incense before the Lord. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is really significant. Not, not just because an angel shows up. And notice, angels are really scary in Scripture. People either worship them or fall down terrified. An angel shows up and speaks to Zechariah. This has not happened. It has been 400 years since God has spoken to one of his prophets so that they might speak to the people. He had spoken through Abraham and through Moses and through David and through the prophets all the way down through Malachi and then there has been 400 years of silence. It's really difficult to trust someone's promises when you don't hear from them for 400 years. Zechariah's name, oddly enough, means Yahweh remembers. God remembers. And so what's, what's happening in this moment 
as the angel shows up to speak to Zechariah, is that after this silence comes the voice of God. And what he is saying is, I am going to fulfill the promises the people have been waiting on. And not only that, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. And your son is going to make my people ready to follow the Savior I am sending. This is incredible news. This is spectacular. And Zechariah says, how can I know this? An angel wasn't enough. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Now listen. You will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, He went back home. How can I know this? Angel shows up. Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Lord, shows up, speaks to him face to face, tells him the word of God, and he says, how can I know this? Are you kidding me, Zechariah? This is is a ridiculous question. How can I know this? There's an angel there. Is it how many of us are just like Zechariah? God, how can I know that you love me? But how can I know that, that you are with me? How can I know that you are there? And you see, our problem is the same as Zechariah's problem. We fail to believe the word of God. Because God in his word has told us that he loves us. God in his word has told us that he will never leave us or forsake us. God has revealed himself to us in his word and it's our responsibility to believe it. Zechariah's problem is is not that God has not revealed himself. Zechariah's problem is that he's not believing The revelation. He's not believing God's word. I mean, he certainly would have been familiar with God's word. And had he just given it a thought for a moment, he would have realized that God is in the habit of doing the miraculous. Especially in situations like his. I mean, if he would have opened his eyes for a moment, then he could have looked back across the landscape of the Old Testament. And he would have seen Samuel, born to the barren Hannah. Samson, born to the barren wife of Manoah. Isaac, born to barren Sarah. I mean, that last example is especially pertinent, right? His situation is really similar. 
He and Elizabeth are well along in years. Abraham and Sarah were 190, respectively. I mean, you remember the story. God tells Abraham that he is going to give him a promise, or a child, a child of promise, through Sarah. And Abraham falls on his face and laughs. Then when Sarah finds out, she laughs. And then when God keeps his word, they name the child Isaac, which means laughter. See, Zechariah's problem is not God's revelation. It's his failure to believe that God's word applies to him. It's his failure to trust what God has said. He magnifies his problems and minimizes the promises of God. He sees his issue. I'm, I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. How, how can this be? We do the same. Magnify our problems and minimize God's power. Did you know that you can block out the rays of the sun at noonday with a quarter? All you have to do is get that quarter and just bring it right up to your eye. You can block out the sun. This is precisely what we do, friends, with our problems. We grab a hold of them like that quarter and we block out our vision of God's power and glory. We must take our eyes off of all of the issues that we think might prevent God from keeping his word. Take our eyes off the quarter and put it on the sun. God has the power to keep his promises. And we will do well if we put and understand our problems in proportion to his power. He is greater than any disappointment that we face. And he is capable of keeping his word. We should believe what God has said. So friends, stop focusing on the quarters in your lives. Look to the sun. Zechariah sees his problem as greater than God's power. And he says, how, how can I know this? And I actually, I love Gabriel's response. It's a, do you know who I am? Kind of response. You, you want a sign. Me, showing up here, speaking to you. It's not enough for you, Zechariah? Oh, I'll, I'll give you a sign. Here's your sign. You're not going to be able to speak or hear until my word has been fulfilled. We see here that he's not able to, to speak, and later on they have to motion for him to come when Elizabeth has given birth. And we realize that he's not only mute, but he is deaf. And his sign that he requested is also God's gracious judgment and discipline, correcting his unbelief. 
And so he goes back home, and we read verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, kept herself in seclusion for five months, and she said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Elizabeth, in her old age, prayed for a child for so long, and now she sees the kindness of God. She's become pregnant. All because God, in His kindness, decided to answer an old prayer that had gone cold. What do I mean? I mean that that when Luke says that Zechariah and Elizabeth are well advanced in years, that's not the Bible's way of saying that Elizabeth is in her 20s. It's Luke's kind way of saying Elizabeth is old. For her to conceive at this point in her life is a physical impossibility. And yet God, well, he is not hindered by her biological clock. He answers an old prayer that certainly at this point, unable to have children, she has stopped praying. Did you notice that when Zechariah is in the temple, he's not praying for a son right at that moment. But he's offering incense which would accompany the regular morning and evening offering. We know this. We studied Leviticus, right? Remember, the priest would go into the holy place. The altar of incense is there. The lampstand, the bread of presence. He would offer the incense up. It would be a sweet savor. It would represent the the prayers of the people going before the Lord. He's not making an offering on behalf of himself. He's praying for the people. He's performing the duties and the functions of a priest, And it just so happens that God answers the prayers of the people for a coming Messiah. At the same time, he answers those old prayers of an old man and an old woman for a son. God hears your prayers. And he answers them according to his will. Oftentimes when we don't get what we might hope for in prayer, we can be tempted towards despair. But we must trust that God knows better than we do. That he's for our ultimate good. And that he's working everything out for his own glory. Sometimes in sermon preparation, I I have things and I go, you can't, just let's not put that in there. And I'm tempted to put them in and and I'm going to do that this morning. And so if this takes us off the rails, um, you you, you know when it happened. Uh, But y'all know Garth Brooks? Some of you should at least. We're we're rural enough here. At least friends in low places, right? Uh, he, He has this old song 
called Unanswered Prayers. I don't know if you know it or not. But in the song, he talks about, he's with his wife and he goes to a, a home, his home, old hometown to a football game and he runs into, it rhymes, right? His old high school flame, right? And he says, I can't help but remember these prayers that I prayed back then, that, that if God would just give her to me, basically as a wife, then I would never ask him for anything ever again. And then the hook or the chorus is, you know, in his great Garth Brooks voice, like, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Right, it goes on. His whole point is to say, had God answered this prayer in the way that I wanted, I would have been really disappointed. God's way is better than my way. This is not a commentary on the rest of Garth Brooks's theology. I just, I don't know. But I think the point is valid for us. God knows better than we do. And we can trust him. We can pray believing that he will give to us what we would ask for if we knew everything that he knows. He always answers our prayers according to his good will and purposes. And oftentimes, his timetable is very different than our own. We have trouble waiting. Zechariah and Elizabeth had advanced in age and given up on a prayer for a child. But God was ready to surprise them. Elizabeth became pregnant. Verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. I love this. Elizabeth doesn't get an angelic encounter. She gets Zechariah. Who at some point in the midst of his deafness and muteness is able to communicate with her at least at a minimum, about what the child's name ought to be when the time comes. And she doesn't need the angelic encounter. She believes. She understands her pregnancy is the work of God. And so she's not going to follow the tradition of naming their child Zechariah. No, she's going to buck that tradition. She's going to name the child John. But the family is there to make sure she doesn't make this terrible mistake. You know, they're around, they're going, John? Might as well call him Bob or Joe. That's a terrible name. Can't call him John. Look, then, then they said to her, verse 61, none of your relatives has that name. And so they, they, they appeal to Zechariah. They motion him to come in to find out what he wanted him, the child to be called. And Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and wrote, John is his name. 
And they were all amazed. In the midst of his affliction, Zechariah learns to believe what God has said. The sign is about to be fulfilled. As he writes, his name is John upon his tablet. What I can't help but notice with Zechariah is, having been struck with muteness and deafness, it would have been easy for him to abandon his trust and his faith in God. But instead, he believed and he waited. He served God amidst his disappointment. He understood that his affliction was the discipline of the Lord. I love what J.C. Ryle says on this. Let us take heed that affliction does us good, as it did to Zechariah. Sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. I like that a lot. Sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. The sorrow that humbles us and drives us nearer to God is a blessing and a downright gain. From when the Lord's discipline comes in your life, do not despise it. Lean into it and learn from it. Hebrews tells us he is treating you as sons. This is what Zechariah does. He doesn't waste his affliction. He learns from it and grows in faith because of it. Verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak praising God. Fear came on all those who lived around them. And all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, What then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to worship him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
The child grew up and became spiritually strong. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Zechariah opens his mouth and he believes what Gabriel has said now and he prophesies to the people. The time of waiting is over. God is going to redeem his people from slavery to sin as he once redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He has raised up a horn that is the power of salvation for his people. Someone from the house of David, great David's greater son, has come to deliver his people from all unrighteousness and sin. The king is arriving. God has not forgotten his promises. The promise that he made to Abraham way back when is coming to fulfillment right now in their day. And it's this king who is going to bring forgiveness of sins. God, in his mercy and compassion, through Zechariah, is announcing that salvation is here. The time of darkness is coming to an end. The shadow of death is waning. The sunrise of salvation is dawning to light the way of peace. John's job, John's significance as a person is defined directly in relationship to Jesus. John is going to point to Jesus. He's going to tell of this great salvation. He's going to announce the forgiveness of sins. This is vitally important. Without the forgiveness of sins, there is no peace with God. No relationship with God. No enjoyment of God. And it's through Jesus, this one that John will prepare the way for, that forgiveness of sins will be possible. John is a child of promise who is tasked with pointing to the child of promise. Jesus will be born so that he might die. It's easy at Christmas to sentimentally, sentimentally celebrate the baby in a manger. But friends, if we never get from the manger to the cross, Christmas is pointless. Christmas is about the crucifixion. When John is announcing the forgiveness of sins, it's also announcing the one through whom that will be accomplished. Sins have to be forgiven in order for us to have relationship with God. 
This is what makes the incarnation so miraculous. The unmade becomes made. The creature writes himself into his creator, the creator writes himself into his creation as a creature so that he might be killable. So that he can die for the sins of his people. Jesus comes so that he can live a perfect life in the place of his people. He came so that he might die a substitutionary death in the place of his people. God is good and just, and therefore he deals with sin. He judges sin. And if there is no Savior for us, then what we deserve, what righteousness demands that you and I and every other human being receive is the wrath of God eternally. And yet God, in His mercy, not because of anything you or I have done, in His mercy and love and His grace, decides to save us. That's what, that's what John is saying here. Salvation is coming. And, and we can announce now on the other side of the cross, we say, Jesus came to save us. This king came to save us. He came to save you and to save me. Have you got your mind around that? Your wrongdoing, your sin. That's why he came. He came to die. He came to absorb an eternity of wrath in your place. He came to save you. Jesus came to save us so that we could have peace with God, so that we could have light instead of darkness, so that we could have joy instead of sadness, so that we could have resurrection instead of death. That's why this is good news. John, his ministry it's about Jesus. And it was foretold. His job would be to announce the coming of Christmas. Malachi 4, 5. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Luke 1, 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And we see here in verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. John's whole life is about Jesus. He's like uh, the Salvation Army bell ringers you see this time of year. right? When, when you're headed into a, a department store and you see those guys outside, ding, 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 you know that Christmas time is here. This is John's ministry. To go about announcing that God is keeping His promises. 
that light has dawned. John is a, a giant index finger pointing to Jesus. Friends, so too should we be. Rockfish Valley Baptist Church exists to worship Jesus and to witness to Jesus, to point to Jesus and to say, He's the King. He was crucified for sins dead and buried. And on the third day, He rose again. He's ascended into heaven where He rules and reigns at God's mighty right hand. And He has promised to return again to make everything sad untrue, to make all things new, to judge the wicked and to end evil and to rescue His people and to wrap them up into an eternity of joy and adventure. Let us be a people that faithfully worships Jesus and witnesses to Him. How, How will you point your friends and family to Jesus this holiday season? What plans do you have to do that? Let me encourage you, if you're going to ruin a Christmas dinner or a family event, don't do it by talking about politics. Instead, talk about religion. Talk about Jesus. It is eternally more significant. Let us be a people that worship and witness faithfully to Jesus as we believe His Word and wait upon his return. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are infinitely trustworthy, that you are faithful when we are faithless. Thank you that you keep your word. We thank you that vile as we might be, sinful as we might be, you have set your affections on us. You have determined to save us from our sins. Confronted with this amazing love, we ask, how can it be? And we cast ourselves upon Christ. Lord, we thank you that we can have our sins forgiven. This is good news. We thank you for giving us faith to believe in Christ. We ask that you would help us to be obedient to the word of Christ. To believe it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.